Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Will you turn with me back to Revelation chapter 2? We'll have a a lot of singing next week and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. Short little challenge from God's Word next uh, Sunday. But this morning we return to our study in Revelation. And at this point we've been going through the letters that Jesus wrote to uh, the seven churches. And um, this morning we study his message, Christ's message, to the church at Pergamos. Also to us. Um, so we look through Ephesus, Smyrna, and now we come to uh, Pergamos. Ephesus, uh, some theologians describe that. They give names to these churches. They call Ephesus the loveless church, if you remember. That was what Jesus had told them. They had left their first love. And others call Smyrna the persecuted church. And typically, they'll refer here to the church at Pergamos, this third church of that day that Jesus addresses. They refer to this church as the compromising church. Uh, or the worldly church. The name Pergamos means marriage, um, and, and with the prefix per uh, there, Dr. White notes in his commentary on this passage that it has the idea, indicates a mixed marriage, like um, what we would think of uh, when, a, when a believer marries an unbeliever. And, and that's what had transpired here in the church in the city of Pergamos. They were to be the bride of Jesus Christ, but in a very real way, they had begun to wed themselves to the values of their culture and the practices of their culture. As Christians, they were not of this world, uh, but they had begun to marry themselves uh, to the ways of thinking and, and the ways of living of this world. And like all of these messages from Jesus to these specific churches here, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. There's also a message for you and I this morning. Uh, do we see this kind of thing happening in churches even today where um, worldly values, worldly ways of thinking result in worldly ways of living, the, the world infiltrating the church? Yeah, we do. Uh, and, and just like there, it's an ever-present threat and one that's serious because it... it it threatens to ruin the testimony of the church and be an obstacle to the mission. So we read verses 12 to 17 here earlier. Before we study them together, let's ask God to bless our time in his word this morning. Lord, we come to you now and uh, ask that your Holy Spirit, who's, who's here indwelling every single person, who's trusted in Jesus as Savior, Lord, we ask him to have free reign uh, to, to reveal the truth uh, of these verses to us. We're so thankful for them. As we gave you thanks earlier in the service, we thank you for your word. As Pastor Daniel said, we're thankful it's a, a sharp two-edged sword and that it cuts so that it can heal. Um, and Lord, I pray that that would happen here this morning, that we would understand uh, your life-giving, life-transformational word and we would allow your Holy Spirit to do what he intends to do with it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So um, hopefully by now you've, you've understood, like the outline really hasn't changed on their bulletin for the last three weeks and it won't uh, because there's a pattern here in each one of these messages uh, that Jesus gives the church uh, and typically we, I like three points, you don't want five, right? So uh, really what you have is you have an identification, Jesus reveals himself to that church. Then you have the commendation <clears throat> and then you usually have some criticism. Uh, Jesus says, here's what y'all need to work on. And then you have a command, what they need to do in order to rectify the situation, and um, always a promise at the end. So the first thing is a commendation, but uh, let's look at how Jesus identifies himself in verse 12, because that's how it, it always starts, and he always uses specific language uh, from chapter 1, from back when he identified himself, revealed himself to John. Look at verse 12, it says, and to the angel, and we understand that means to the pastor, to the leaders of the church of Pergamos, right, these things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Now, if you flip back a page or two, maybe you don't even have to go that far, and look at chapter 1, verse 16, it's there that Jesus described himself this very same way. Out of his mouth, it says, goes a sharp two-edged sword. And that sword is going to be referenced again here in this message to Pergamos. And it's also described in Revelation 19.15. We won't turn over there. But it says that out of Jesus' mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations. So what's his sword? What's it talking about here? Well, if we properly interpret Scripture by letting Scripture explain Scripture to us, we understand that the sword is the Word of God. Isn't that what it says in Ephesians 6? That that's our offensive weapon, the armor of God. And, and in Hebrews uh, chapter 4, verse 12, it says the Word of God, it's alive. And it's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and of the intents of our heart. And so that's what objective truth straight from the almighty creator, the creator of the universe is. It's a sword that we have here and that we're studying together here. That's what objective truth uh, from our merciful Savior does. It, it cuts. It's always, not always comfortable when it cuts. But there's a purpose in it. It cuts so that it, it can heal, much like a, a surgeon might. And there's no point in hiding from it. There's no point in putting up a front. As Hebrews 4.12 says, it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. It's alive. It's powerful. It's transformational. God's word discovers our condition. But even better yet, it transforms our condition if we submit to it. And if we yield to it and bring our lives into alignment with what God tells us in it. Now, it's, it's noteworthy that Jesus chooses to identify himself this way to this particular church. Um, we, we, it's so different than the, the previous two identifications. Uh, I mean, he told Ephesus, I'm in your midst. And I'm the Alpha and Omega. I'm alive. Uh, he also told Smyrna the same thing. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I, I'm the first and the last. I'm your everything and I'm alive. But here he reminds them, hey, I'm the one who's got the sharp sword with two edges. In some sense, this, uh, first self, this is the first self-revelation of Jesus that's got a bit of maybe a, a negative tone, especially if we couple it with what verse 16 says about his sword later on. But, but it's only a negative thing if we resist the sword. That is God's word. It's only a negative thing if you and I refuse to submit to the transformational power in the word of God. Now let's go to verse 13. Here's the commendation. Here's the compliment. Jesus gives them an attaboy. This is what they're doing right. I know thy works. 
and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. And we'll pause there. Uh, so I know that works, Jesus tells them. I, I know you're busy in ministry. You're busy um, doing what I've asked you to do, what I've called you to do. And I know um, that where you're, you are where um, Satan's seed is, he says. Uh, meaning um, you're a church that's busy doing ministry. You're busy doing what I've called you to do. And you're doing it in a place that's extremely tough to do so. Now, I told you a couple weeks ago when we studied uh, Christ's message to the church at Smyrna that they had it pretty tough there. Um, the Christians there, they couldn't find a job. Um, they couldn't even go into the market to buy groceries for their family unless once a year they, they took some incense uh, and they, they threw it on a little altar and they said, Caesar is Lord. And then they'd be given a certificate that said, you can have a job. You can, you can go in here and buy food. Um, but it's even worse here in Pergamos. I mean, idolatry was everywhere. There, there was temples to Greek gods, uh, Roman gods. There was emperor worship, just like in Smyrna. Uh, Pergamos had these gigantic temples uh, for the worship of the uh, god Zeus. And another one for the worship of the emperor. And they had one for the worship of the, the small g god, one known as Asclepius. He was a snake-like god. Uh, they, they saw him as a god of healing. People who had some illness or... Um, physical problem. They would worship this God by going into the temple and laying down, sometimes overnight, and there were snakes roaming around freely, and they would just hope that a snake would crawl over them and touch them and potentially heal them because of their faithfulness to worshiping this God. They would refer to this God as Asclepios Soter, meaning he is our savior. Asclepios is our savior. And the temple to Zeus here in Pergamos was the largest, this massive structure. Inside, there was this like throne-like uh, uh, altar for the worship of Zeus. And so we can understand why Jesus says here, I know that you're, you're busy and you're doing what I've asked you to do and you're doing it in a place that's really tough where Satan's seat is. The presence of idolatry there was so strong. Pastor John MacArthur said, while Christians in Smyrna, they had to choose between being faithful to God and compromising with idolatry. They had to do that once a year so they could get that certificate. Christians here in Pergamos, they faced this kind of choice every single day. And Jesus continues his commendation to them in verse 13. I know you hold fast my name and you have not denied my faith. And they had remained faithful to Jesus. They had not left the faith in this idolatrous city. Before we continue on, I just want you to notice how Jesus describes faith in him here. He says, you, you have not denied my faith. And Christian, don't forget that. Don't become downtrodden when life gets rough. Don't let Satan tell you, well, your faith is pitiful and weak. Um, because if it's in Jesus, your faith is as strong as the one in whom you put your faith. How strong is Jesus? It's pretty strong, right? It's pretty strong. But place it in Jesus, all in Jesus. At the end of verse 13, uh, it gives us a specific instance of how this church held fast Christ's name and had not denied faith in him. It says, even in those days where Antipas was my faithful martyr and he was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. We don't have anything else in God's word about Antipas, just here. But in church history and historical documents, it does tell us a little bit more uh, about him. And he was a leader here in this church and he was killed because he wouldn't deny Jesus Christ. And they put him in this large bronze bowl like a, a, a cow, uh, an idol. They put him inside of it and, and they cooked him alive. They, they roasted Antipas alive. His name means against all. And he did. 
against everything else. He trusted in Jesus. And, and I think it's so awesome how Jesus refers to Antipas here. What does he call him? He says, Antipas is my faithful martyr. Martyr literally means witness. It could be translated that way. And if you look at chapter 1 and verse 5, that's the same way Jesus describes himself. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, I don't think Jesus could give this guy a better compliment, a, a better commendation than really just saying, yeah, you're a follower of me all the way. All the way. You're a faithful witness just like me. And we're to be like Jesus, right? Antipas was. Many in this church were. But this church was not without problems. And um, they needed to be addressed and addressed quickly, Jesus says here. So it's in verses 14 and 15. We see the criticism. Jesus says this in verse 14. I have a few things against thee. Now back in verse 4 of this chapter, Jesus spoke to the church at Ephesus and he addressed one thing to them. He said, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. But here he has a few things to deal with the church at Pergamos about. And I mention that simply because there are two things addressed in verses 14 and 15. I, I believe it would be a mistake to combine them. Some theologians do. I believe there's two separate issues going on here that threaten to ruin this church's testimony and obstruct their effectiveness in ministry. Uh, and both of them, this is interesting, both of them are doctrinal. He mentions two doctrines here. They're, they're both uh, really stemming from wrong thinking. <laughs> and doctrine's important. Thinking's important. What does wrong thinking always result in? Yeah, wrong doing, wrong living. Uh, both of them are doctrinal and, and both of them are practical. And the first one in verse 14 is this. Because thou hast them there that hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So this first instance, this first thing that Jesus has against him, this first doctrine that is screwing things up, it has an Old Testament reference. The next one's going to have a, a New Testament relevance. But way back in the book of Numbers, in chapters 22 through 25, and you, you may have studied this before, maybe in Sunday school or something, there was a king named Balak, and uh, he hired a guy named Balaam to curse God's people. Gave him a lot of money to do it, and, and, and Balaam tried. And when he cursed him, that happened. God blessed him. Did it again. God blessed him. And he, eventually, he told Balak, he said, um, Look, you cannot curse what God blesses. I don't matter how much money you give me. It doesn't matter how many times I do it. But he told Balak this. He told the king this. If you can get the Israelite men to become immorally involved with these Canaanite women, with the Moabite women, that sin will eventually lead them to the sin of idolatry. And then God will judge. God will curse his own people. And that's exactly what happened. That's what it's talking about here in verse uh, 14. And, and Jesus is using here this Old Testament event to describe what's going on to some degree here in the church at Pergamos. Now you probably understand what the culture was like at this time in the Roman Empire. Uh, wicked, unbiblical immorality. It was just part of everyday life for almost everyone. Not, not for the believer. But before coming to Christ... Before these Christians in Pergamos got, got saved, this was what their lifestyle was like. I, I was reading a quote by, by Cicero, uh, and he, he's a Stoic, which it's, it's interesting he mentions this because they're usually against, you know, um, 
being involved in that kind of stuff, not on religious grounds, just because they think it messes up how you think and, and virtue and stuff like that. But he said, I don't know why Christians have a problem with this. This is just how everybody lives. It's how everybody's lived all their life long since the beginning of the world. It's a very common thing. And um, the world was starting to get into the church. Their values, their practices, it was infiltrating those who claimed to know Jesus Christ as, as their Savior. And even those who weren't involved in, it in the church, the rest of the church was tolerating this kind of behavior by those who claimed to be born again. And so much like God's message through Paul to the church in Corinth in First and Second Corinthians, um, these, these Christians here in Pergamos, they were ambivalent and maybe like Corinth, even boastful about this kind of sin being part of the lives of those who, who were part of the church. And what, what did God tell the church in Corinth when they were doing the same thing? In 1 Corinthians 6.18, God says through the apostle Paul, flee fornication. You know, we're told elsewhere in scripture, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But God tells us that there are, there are some temptations, there are some sins that are so strong and they have such a destructive effect on our lives that you don't need to, to stand and fight and hope that Satan will flee. You need to flee. You need to bug out. You, you need to get off the X. You need to run. Isn't that what Joseph did when Potiphar's wife tempted him? I mean, he left his coat. <laughs> and he, he got out of Dodge. Christian, when God tells you how to fight temptation and overcome sin, you probably ought to follow his instructions how to do it. And these Christians here at, at the church in Pergamos, they weren't fleeing fornication. They were involved in it. Some were having fun, what the world thinks, have fun with it. And even those who weren't, the rest of them were tolerating that going on in the church here. Now, the second thing that Jesus says that he has against them, the, the second criticism, it's in verse 15. It says, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Jesus says, I hate it. And so this was also a problem in the church at Ephesus. We addressed that a couple of weeks back, about a month or so ago when we studied that uh, passage in verse 6 of chapter 2. God said he hated it there. <laughs> and he says that he hates it here in verse 15 in the church at Pergamos. What, what is this false doctrine? Well, uh, we don't know for sure. Um, some people couple it with verse 14. And um, it's, it's possible that you could do that because this was a time when heresies like Gnosticism were really prevalent where they said, hey, it doesn't matter if you're saved, you can, once saved, always saved, you can, and that's true, that's, that's truth. Um, but that means you can live however you want. <laughs> you can do whatever you want, you can live any lifestyle you want because you know you got a home in heaven. Now, this type of license to, to sin. The gospel doesn't give you a license to sin. Um, the gospel doesn't free you to sin. It frees you to obey, to live in joyful obedience to the Lord. Um, but I believe uh, that this is, is something different, just like it was with the church at, at Ephesus. Uh, Jesus says here, I have a few things against thee. Not one. Not one. And we know that Nicholas, when we were studying the book of Acts, he was one of the first deacons in the church. Uh, it's possible that he fell to some false teaching. I mean, that can happen. Or it's possible that after his death, someone twisted his teaching. And uh, in, in the Greek, Nicolaitans, that means the conquering of the people. And as I mentioned, when we studied Jesus' message to the church at Ephesus, I believe this false doctrine here, what, what Jesus says he hates in both places, 
is this unnecessary and this unbiblical separation between the clergy and the laity, between pastors and maybe pastors and deacons and, and church members. And that's something that began developing at this point in church history. And it's something that still goes on, even in some Christian denominations and in other faiths. It's rampant in Catholicism. You see it in things like pastors or priests wearing different clothes than the congregation to separate themselves, what they call vestments. That's just one example. Now, there is a biblical separation between clergy and laity. For instance, there's requirements given in 1 Timothy and in Titus, uh, requirements of character for pastors and for deacons that are laid out in God's word, and those requirements don't necessarily always apply to all other members of the church. And there's an accountability for leaders in the church that they're going to have to answer to God in a way that others won't. But that's not what the doctrine of the Nicolaitans that Jesus says he hates here uh, is. It's an unnecessary and unbiblical separation between clergy and laity. It's this attitude of arrogance that you can see at times in clergy. It's domineering submission of others in the church that Jesus addresses here. Does that ever occur today? Yeah. And I do. I see its outworkings or effects in what I talked about earlier in those investments, um, those special clothes that are worn by clergy. I mean, that's one of the most easily to identify uh, effects of, of this false doctrine that Jesus hates. Uh, let me give you another example, and you all know this because I've told you this before. And this is just a personal conviction and preference, so if somebody else doesn't feel the same way, I'm not saying they're a Nicolaitan. But um, <laughs> now I, I see it in that ridiculous title, Reverend. Man, I, I hate it. <laughs> I'm not saying that Jesus does, but... Um, I don't know where reverend came from. I know it's not from a chapter and verse in the Bible because I can't find it. And uh, listen, I'm telling you this as a pastor, this whole separate, like this doctrine that Jesus hates, warning you against it, just as I warn you against immorality, that was a part, this doctrine of Balaam. But this doctrine of the Nicolaitans, Jesus hates it just as bad. It's a sin just as bad. And um, as your pastor, I have to tell you, like, look, you, you need to guard against this false doctrine. You do. It's something Jesus hates. It's something that he's now talked to two different churches about twice here in Revelation. And it's still a problem in churches today, even in Baptist churches. It is. There are preachers and there are church members, even in our denomination, who view pastors incorrectly. They might call him, well, he's the man of God. And that's not unbiblical. All right, that's not the incorrect part. But it's this concept that, well, whatever the man of God says we should do, whatever uh, vision the man of God says he's been given by God, we should blindly follow it and support it. Listen now, the man of God is no substitute for the word of God. Amen? Amen. Let this lead you. <laughs> your pastor, your deacon should be leading you through this right here. Is your pastor inerrant? You can say amen. No, he's not. <laughs> Um, infallible? No way. This is, is your pastor sufficient? No, I sure ain't. This is, this is how your pastors and your deacons should be, be leading you. 
And um, these two doctrines that Jesus needed to criticize and warn us against, two ways of wrong thinking that they're going to lead to sinful wrong living, and they're going to prevent the church from having a testimony and a ministry that honors the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's the fix? Let's get to the command, verses 16 and 17. Here you go. Jesus says, repent. <laughs> That's it. One word. Turn. That's what Jesus tells them to do. Have a change of mind, have a change of heart that leads to a change in your behavior. That is how you came to faith in Jesus Christ, isn't it? Yeah. And that's how you're going to continue in your relationship with the Lord. We, we don't stop sinning once we're saved, once we repent and are saved. So we ought not stop repenting. Being saved, that's a one-time thing, that, that initial repentance. Uh, I loved when I went to Moldova. You know, we got um, terms we use to describe getting saved, getting saved born again. Um, all those are fine, right? Asking Jesus into our heart, committing our lives to the Lord. But when I went to Moldova, um, uh, talking there with Mihai, they referred to it as when I repented. I just thought that was so beautiful because, I mean, that it's easy. It, it, it's doctrinally correct. It's when you turn from sin and, and you turn in faith uh, uh, to the Lord. Being saved is a one-time thing, that initial repentance, coming to Christ for salvation. But the, the Christian life, you and I continuing in Christ, that is a lifelong turning from sin and turning in faith to Jesus. Pastor Paul Washer, he once said, that the greatest evidence, you want assurance of your salvation, the greatest evidence that there was a day when you repented and believed is that you do so now to an even greater degree. And please notice that this is a church-wide command given by Jesus to the church at Pergamos and to us. It's not just to those who are involved in immorality or this separation of clergy and laity, uh, but it's also a command that Jesus gave to those who had tolerated these few things that Jesus had against them because they needed to repent too. They needed to repent for not caring about holiness in their community of faith as they should have. They needed to repent for not being loving enough to humbly go to those who were involved in these two serious sinful ways of thinking and, and living and, and pointing them to a better way in love and humility. Repent. That's been Jesus' message from the get-go. We went through the Gospel of Mark together about a year ago. That was literally Jesus' first sermon. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. What if we don't? What if we disregard Jesus' command? Well, look at what Jesus says after repent in verse 16. Or else I will come to thee quickly and I'll fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Well, we know, again, we know what that is. That's God's word. And here's the concept. Uh, you can believe and, and submit and bring your lives into alignment with this, with God's word right here, right now. Or if you choose not to, you can experience the word of God that comes out of his mouth in the Revelation 19.15 sense. Where it says, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he will smite the nations. In verse 15, 17, Jesus, he once again gives this promise and this reward to the overcomers. So here's, this is to all those who will in faith Respond to the command he just gave. Let's read verse 17 once more. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone and in the stone a new name written which no man knoweth saving he that re receives it. <clears throat> so what's the promise? What's the reward? What is this hidden manna that Jesus is talking about? Well, in John 6, 41, Jesus said, I'm the true bread from heaven. 
And I believe that's what the Old Testament manna was pointing to, that God will always provide everything you need. He'll always satisfy. Only he can satisfy. And he does it in Jesus Christ. That's a hidden manna. For, for these Christians who had fallen to the doctrine of, of Balaam, this immorality. Immorality is just a, like any sin. And Satan says, do it. <laughs> you deserve it. You need this. It'll make you happy. Don't you see everybody else happy when they're doing it? Do it. It feels good. And Jesus tells them, no, I'm your hidden manna. I'm not trying to keep anything from you. I satisfy better. I'm all you need, Christian. What, what's this white stone with a, with a new name on it? Well, this is a cultural thing, and there's actually a couple of different ways they use this. One was in a court of law. So if you were being tried, um, if you were innocent, you got a white stone. If you were not, you got a, a black stone. There's also a tradition uh, in, in athletic competitions where a victor, whoever won the competition, they'd be given this white stone and it had their name engraved on it. And this was quite uh, an award because it meant from then on, um, their life was, was totally taken care of. Like all, in, all inclusive, all expenses paid at the public expense. That's quite the ticket, right? And I think it's a pretty beautiful picture of heaven and what we'll have there for eternity. That's the promise. I had someone ask me recently about this. Like, what's this new name thing? Because I think they wanted to know what their name was going to be in heaven. Like, I'm pretty good with Jason. I don't know if I want it to be Philbert or something like that. But, uh, well, new, new in the new name here in the Greek, new doesn't necessarily mean entirely different. Uh, it means new like a different quality. And won't heaven be a completely different qualitative experience for each one of us here? <laughs> That's why it's our hope. That's why it's our blessed hope. And this promise, this assurance of a heavenly destination, forever satisfying, it's for those who repent and overcome. Have you ever done that? Can you look back at a time in your life when um, you recognize, man, I'm a sinner. I need a, a savior. And I know that's who Jesus is. I've just heard that. And I've heard the gospel and I understand that if I trust in Jesus because he paid for my sin debt in my place on the cross, if, if I ask God to save me by faith in Jesus, I can be saved. I can be born again. If you've never done that, do that. To, repent. Do that initial repentance right now. Like when, as I'm talking, just in your heart, call out to God in prayer. Confess your sins. Tell him you're trusting in Jesus as Savior. Now for you who have, Christian, you've repented in the past. Right? I mean, that's how you started your relationship with the Lord. You turned from sin and faith. You turned to Jesus. Has that continued? It did in the life of the Apostle Paul. Um, Jerry Bridges writes about this in his book, but I, I just love it. You know, God had Paul write uh, 1 Corinthians around 53 AD. And in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 9, Paul says, he refers to himself, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. Like all the other the other. 11, way better than me. I'm the least of all the apostles. And then he wrote Ephesians uh, about nine years later, um, AD 62. And there Paul refers, he says, I'm the least of the saints. I'm the least of all Christians. 
And then a few years later, God had Paul write 1 Timothy, and he says there, Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I have I am chief. So, so Paul went in his own estimation of who he was. He went from least of the apostles to a least of Christians. And finally, near the end of his life, he said, I am the chief of sinners. What was going on? What in the world? Was Paul backsliding? Was he caught in some sin that was dominating his life? I don't think so. I believe Paul just wrote and described what we all as Christians ought to be experiencing. God using his life-giving, life-transforming word to do what he's designed it to do to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ by making us more and more aware of sin in our life and and, um, sin that requires repentance. Confession to God and turning from it. You and I uh, praying, like as Jesus followers, praying what David prayed in the Psalms. Search me, O God. See if there be any wicked way in me because I want it out. <laughs> I don't want it to be part of my life. I want to turn from sin in faith. I want to turn to your full and free forgiveness. I don't want to tolerate that in my life. I don't want it to be the testimony of our church. Repentance. And some people see that as such a negative word. I, I don't. Like, um, listen, there is real beauty in repentance. It's a promise of escaping old sins and old ways and old sorrows. Man, it is a joyful thing. A joyful thing to begin new again. I believe that's, honestly, repentance, it's got to be the most joyful, hopeful, peaceful concept in all of the gospel. And it's possible because of what God did for us in Jesus Christ. Will you obey his command here in verse 16 this morning? He says, repent. Will you say, say to the Lord, uh, as we sing a, a closing song, will you tell the Lord, man, change my mind, change my heart, change my way of thinking so that I can change my way of living here this morning? And, and don't just do that this morning. Do it your whole life long. Because what does Jesus promise? Satisfaction in him awaits. An assurance of a destiny in heaven. That's the reward of the overcomer who will. Tommy, will you come and lead us in a time to respond to God's word and thank him for